Welcome to episode six of the Community Renewables podcast. And I am your host, Craig Morris, here with Rebecca Freitag. Hello, everyone. Who is usually our moderator, but she's also an expert on our topic today, acceptance. Well, I'm currently getting my master's in public acceptance of a carbon tax. Okay, so what do we need to know about acceptance? First, let's face it. In Germany, wind power has come to a standstill. And one reason is that in many places, citizen initiatives object to local wind farm projects. So how can we ensure acceptance for the energy transition? Well, what does the discussion about acceptance of a carbon tax tell us? Well, let's delve into some jargon first. A carbon tax is a Pigouvian tax. It internalizes the external effects of carbon emissions in order to incentivize carbon-neutral consumption. It differs from other taxes in that it's a revenue-neutral tax, meaning that all the money collected is returned to taxpayers or reinvested into climate purposes or used to lower other taxes. Okay, so the goal is not to come up with yet another tax, but rather to focus all tax revenue around carbon emissions. Right. Of course, I wouldn't say that acceptability of a carbon tax is the same for renewable energy. But there is some common ground. I'm all ears. So two concepts caught my attention. First, ex-ante and ex-post acceptability. So acceptability before and after. Yes. Acceptability increases once people experience the benefits and realize that their concerns were exaggerated. Voter aversion may abate once a policy is implemented, as people become more familiar with the measure and they are better able to gauge its costs and benefits. Yeah, we saw that in Oslo, for instance, where everyone hated the new tax on cars entering the city, but once they saw its effects, the policy became popular. Exactly. The best evidence on the ability of voters to update their beliefs comes from studies of congestion charges and taxes on waste. One study reviewed the differences in the ex-ante and ex-post acceptability of congestion charges in London, uh, several cities in Norway and Stockholm. And in Stockholm, people voted in a referendum after a trial congestion charge. Before its introduction, many people in these cities would have rejected the congestion charge. But lots of them changed their mind once they saw the effectiveness of the tax in reducing road usage and felt the benefit of reduced congestion. We'll put a link to the study in the show notes. People think it's going to be expensive, but they later see that if you consume less, it isn't more, more expensive. It's about changing behavior, so once you do that, you're good. Okay, so that was your first point. Uh, what was the second point? Yeah, so the second point is about the connection between perceived fairness and acceptability. If people perceive, say, a carbon price as fair, acceptability and support increase. But how do we objectively define fairness? And to make things even more complicated, general trust in government affects acceptance levels and people need information about what a policy is for. Yeah, you know, some friends of mine live on a street where the speed limit was lowered from 50 to 30 kilometers an hour. 
And I asked them if they liked it, and they said, yeah, it's, it's quieter now. But the main difference between 30 and 50 is not just the noise, it's that deaths from cars hitting pedestrians and cyclists skyrocket above 30 kilometers an hour. And there are some benefits from lower air pollution. So it really matters what benefits people perceive and which ones they aren't informed about. But Craig, you don't like to talk about acceptance. No. Um, do you know the Serenity Prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr? Mm, I know it in German. So my Aunt Lillian used to have it on the kitchen wall at her home in Mississippi. Uh, the beginning of it goes like this. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And that's the whole problem with acceptance. Accept the things I cannot change. I mean, we portray the energy transition as something unpleasant that we can't stop. So we'll just have to put up with it. And what would you do instead? I'd work towards identification. We want people to look at the changes we need to make during the energy transition and say, I'm proud of that. I'm part of that. I used to do this a decade ago whenever I came back to Germany from France or the U.S. I lived on the French border back then, and when you went over the border, solar was nowhere to be found on the rooftops. But as soon as you reach the German border in the southwest, bam, solar roofs everywhere. And the same thing with wind turbines. Especially in those early years, I used to look at wind farms and think, I'm so happy to be living in a country that's doing the right thing. Our first guest today is Dr. Martin Wolsing. He is a retired professor from the University of Amsterdam with expertise in social acceptance of renewable energy. His much-cited papers have titles like Wind Power and the NIMBY Myth, Institutional Capacity and the Limited Significance of Public Support. NIMBY, by the way, stands for Not in My Backyard. And there are two terms we should define before we get started. One is polder mentalität. Yes, uh, polders are parcels of land in the Netherlands. They're surrounded by ditches that drain water from the land. And so Dutch farmers had to work together to build these things. And so the Dutch have always practiced a really intense form of community cooperation. And that's what they mean by the polder mentality. And you also mentioned the windvogels. Right, that's a kind of cooperative of cooperatives. The Dutch wind co-ops decided to work together as one big co-op. And I, I think it's something we'll come back to in later episodes. Uh, but, you know, I was really glad to have Martin on the, on the podcast because his work may have changed my thinking more than anyone else's. And I reached him a few weeks ago during the strict part of France's corona lockdown. He was at his summer home there, separated from his wife, who was back home in the Netherlands. They couldn't even cross the border to see each other for weeks. But as soon as I got him talking, he immediately put his finger on the problem. 
So before we get to the whole interview, let me just play a snippet from the banter we had before I had even asked him any questions. If you look at what the European Union is saying about community energy, is that they think it is a very attractive idea, but they don't know what it means to the power supply system. You have to reorganize the power supply system to make community energy work. And that's why all the people you're talking to in the communities are struggling with legislation, with unwilling authorities, with large energy companies, with planning, uh, planning permits. It should not be primarily something that should be on a market. Okay, there's a lot to digest there already. Indeed. And I was just telling him about the podcast so he knew what he was getting involved in. And we went right into the interview. Well then, without further ado, here is Professor Martin Walsing. We have about 30 people uh, in, the, yeah. in, in the 10 episodes. Yeah, but then your experience must be that these people are, uh, they want to do something with renewable energy and they find themselves struggling all around with policymakers. Yeah with uh, energy companies, with grid managers, with legislation which doesn't help them, <laughs> etc. So all the time they are not working on renewable energy, what they want to do, hmm. but they are struggling with all the constraints that policy has uh, created for them. Yeah. So there is a lot of talk about community energy, but it's not getting to the core of the essential problem. Well, what is the core essential problem? They think in terms of technology. They think in terms of replacing old conventional sources of power. With renewables. Yes. Yeah. Let, let's say they want to replace the old sources by new sources. Hmm. It, is a, it is a completely different way of generating power. And that means that if you want to do that, you have to rearrange all of your Uh, energy uh, supply system. And that's what you can't find, hardly can find in the red too. The introduction of the feed-in tariff is a legislation. It's organizing. And you know, you know, if you look in the history, the energy companies, they fought it. They have really battled against it. They went to the European Union to fight it because it's not in their interest. And now they won because the feed-in tariffs are gone, and now they have auctions. Energy, renewable energy particularly, is a very different way of generating energy than from fossil fuels. And you, what, it, what you need is the cooperation of people co-producing it, exactly what you can do in community energy. And it's a common good. It's not a public good, so it's not something that the state should be doing. It's not a commodity, a private good, which large energy companies can only do. It's a common good that people have to co-produce together. So what you just said about the whole supply chain thing, that is Herman's share. Yeah, that's right. That is so forgotten today. We're switching now to auctions, or we you know, have over the past few years. Um, is that helpful? What do you think about auctions? Helpful for, for, for whom? Auctions are, is very good for large energy companies. 
it is good for the organizations that come from the old energy system. And that's exactly what we don't need. What we need is totally new organizations coming up from civil society, like the community energy, whatever that may be, the community energy projects that you are investigating. These are completely different types of organizations. And these should be active. That's real innovation. Innovation is not replacing one technology by another. So right? I read, I think this is in a paper of yours from 2012 or something. Uh, so I'm reading your work and you, and you have this sentence and it's acceptance is not a situation, but a process. Yeah. And I read that sentence and I'm thinking to myself, okay, it's like I'm speaking to an oracle, you know? Who speaks? <laughs> who speaks in mysteries? But and I thought if I, I, the first thing I thought was I don't understand what that means. But I bet if I do, if I ever get to the point where I understand this sentence, I think I'm going to actually break break <laughs> through to a new understanding. Yeah, to a new understanding. So you're the professor. I'd like for I'd like to tell you what I have, what I now think this means, and you can give me a grade at the end of this. Okay. Okay. Yeah, All right. Okay. So. <laughs> We have these surveys, right? And, and we ask people, do you like wind? Do you like solar? But also, do you like natural gas, coal, nuclear, yeah. right? And, you get, and, then you and then you produce this chart showing that solar is the most popular, you know, wind the next, biomass the next, going on down, right? And I, I know this as a fact that most of the energy bubble in Germany reads this and says, okay, people like wind, right? There's a majority who likes wind, so let's build wind and we're not going to have any problems. And that's the situation, right? Yeah. And the process that you're describing is something else. So the process, the where the problem occurs is when the wind farm is proposed, citizens then who are affected by this look at the proposal and they are not asked the question from the survey, right? The question, no. the question in the survey is, do you want a wind turbine or a gas turbine? And that is not what they're being asked here, okay? There's, no. uh, uh, no. Options are not proposed. What the citizens are faced with is a question of before and after. No, not only that. Okay, because, so I don't get, when, I'm not going to get an when, A in your class? Uh, not yet. Okay. Not yet. <laughs> but we're only thinking. Okay. Uh, if you ask people before and after, that would be a good idea. Most of the time, this is not done. But that is a position. That's what I call a position. Right. It's a what. It's just one opinion about one particular thing, uh, a general idea of application of an energy source in society. Mm -hmm. That's that's the object of the question. Mm -hmm. And you ask it one time, and then you have an opinion what a person has at that exact moment. Right. If you ask the same people a few years later, you will find that most of the people have changed their opinions because these opinions are dynamic. Mm -hmm. And particularly it's becoming dynamic when people are faced with real projects. Mm -hmm. And a project... Let me tell you, this is very important. A project of a wind farm is not about wind turbines. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's about wind turbines, but that's only a small part of the project. 
much bigger is the landscape that you are going to change with that. Mm -hmm. So the, the selection of the site is more important in this case than the fact that it's wind turbines. And what, another more important question than wind, than wind turbines itself is as such, so that you have the site, and who is going to construct them? In what way? Mm. Much more important. Mm -hmm. And if you ask people, do you like wind? Do you think it's a good idea that we, in this country, will, we will use more wind energy mm -hmm. uh, instead of uh, coal and nuclear power? Yes, then wind is very popular. Right, but if you but ask... That's the, a totally, it, totally different question. Right, but if you also ask them, do you like big companies... They would probably also, you know, do you like big companies or small companies? You would probably get small companies more popular than big companies. Uh, well, in a, in a, in a general uh, survey, yes. Yeah, yeah. But, but there are many, many differences. Uh, this is just an average of an opinion. Right. You have also been a big critic of uh, the term NIMBY. Uh, what's wrong with the term NIMBY? Almost anything. <laughs> Almost everything. <laughs> The first investigation I did was in a very small project in a very small community of wind turbines initiated by the people living in that, in that uh, community. Mm -hmm. So that was 40 years ago already. Mm -hmm. The idea of the developers was immediately, oh, when we are doing something good for society, everybody likes wind energy. Uh, and now we will have a good project. It's perfect. We all uh, designed it very, very well. We're doing something for the people. And now we find that some people are opposing it. Mm -hmm. This must be NIMBY because it's in the neighborhood. Uh, and I investigated that for wind. And within two weeks, I found out this is flawed nonsense. What's flawed about it? People are not opposing it because it's very close to them. Mm -hmm. People are not opposing it in a way that they think, I don't want it here, I, but I want it in somebody else's backyard. That's not what they're saying. No, that's not what they're saying. Uh, but what I'm saying to my students always is, if you don't want to uh, be opposed become the dictator of North Korea. Right. That's the only solution. Yeah, that's so yeah. funny because I so I literally use that example. So I have, uh, you know, people will say things like, yeah, they'll laugh about the Germans opposing power lines or, or you know, wind farms. And then they'll ask me, you know, how's, I, I thought everybody liked the energy transition, the Energiewende, ha, 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 but you can't get anything built. And I say, look, it's a pluralistic society. If you, if you want a country where everybody... That's, that's what we want. Yes. If, if you want like a that. country where everybody does what the overall policy goal is, go to North Korea. And that's right. literally the example right. that I use. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the only solution to it. Yeah. So, well, I, but we, I, th I feel like we haven't really put our finger on it, though. People have a legitimate gripe, which is what I think you just said. They're not just saying, I don't want it in my backyard. They have a legitimate concern. And what you're communicating back to them when you call them NIMBY is, no, you don't. That's right, exactly. That means that your attitude as a developer is wrong. Mm. That's fundamental in a plural society. Yeah. That's, that's what you want. That's why you want to live in a democracy. Yeah. <laughs> so do you know what's going on in the Netherlands right now with like energy and how is, how is acceptance going? If you, you read some of my papers, you know that the concept of social acceptance, we have split that up in, 
in, in different levels. But you guys do a so, really good so job, right? You, you, have, you have the polder mentality and things like that. Most people uh, abroad think that, that in the Netherlands, everything, everybody is talking to each other all the time uh, and, and negotiating, etc. Well, that's basically, it is true. Do you know about the Windvogel? Yeah. It, but it's huge, right? It is. A, it's more or less a federation of yeah. uh, different groups locally that that are combining and, and supporting the, each other. Yeah, but I mean, they're they're speaking with one voice in a way. I'm kind of wondering if maybe uh, the Dutch model of everybody gets together and calls for one thing and speaks with one voice. When they started, they were small as well. So yeah. it is. It is. A, it's a union of. Uh, local smaller groups yeah. uh, that are cooperating on on a on a larger scale on a national scale. But it's it's good. It's working. Yeah, it works. So, Craig, I didn't hear him give you an A in his class. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> well. Do I at least get this right? He is saying NIMBY is nonsense. It's an easy excuse to not dig deeper into their other legitimate opposing reasons. But why? Well, let me quote from a book by a consultant in North America. The book is entitled Responding to Community Outrage, and it's by Peter Sandman. It was originally published in 1993, so maybe Mr. Sandman sees things differently today. But in the foreword to this book, he writes that his intended audience is utility representatives. And here's what he says. I am assuming that people are very upset about some risk, or likely to become very upset about it, that you do not believe their level of concern is technically justified, and that you are looking for ways to understand and respond better. End of quote. And so he assumes here that the business world is right and the public is wrong. And this is no way to start a discussion with the public. Think of it from the citizen's perspective. If you have a legitimate gripe, then being called NIMBY doesn't fix anything. It simply makes you feel insulted in addition to whatever justified complaint you had. And so being called NIMBY adds insult to injury. And there was an Australian developer who understood this really well. He wrote about how the public had concerns about noise from wind turbines, and they were just told that these concerns were not real. And I find this example compelling because I agree that the noise from wind turbines is overstated. And so let me quote a passage from his text, and we'll put the reference in the show notes as well. Non-acoustic factors contribute to the annoyance people feel. That annoyance brings stress, which produces the symptoms described. The non-acoustic factors are largely attributable to the manner in which wind farms are developed, in particular, Government's dismissal of a few people with a real problem as antisocial. End of quote. And so there you are. Call people NIMBY, and it only makes the problem worse. 
I totally agree with him when he says the mistake we are making is replacing one technology with another and think the job is done. It's something I've also observed in the area of the implementation of the sustainable development goals. Sustainability is often reduced to rational argumentation and measurability. But it's simply not enough to name numbers and goals, you know, like a percentage of renewables or a coal exit by whenever. And the sustainability transformation cannot simply be left only to technology. The problems have arisen from our behavior and thinking. So we have to correct exactly that again and bring technological change and social transformation together. Now, the example of the survey you mentioned in the interview reminds me of two points from my master thesis. First, the survey question is crucial. So I looked at surveys on the acceptance for a carbon tax and almost all surveys asked, are you in favor of a carbon tax? And the average result was about 65% saying no, 35% saying yes. And this is kind of understandable, right? If you don't know the effects and advantages and are asked if you are in favor of yet another tax, well, I guess I would say no as well. But when the question gave more background information on the effects of climate, economy and distribution because the revenue is being redistributed, 65% were in favor of this tax. So in other words, first, Don't trust service. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, take a careful look at the question that was being asked. And then second point is communication. Communication and information can clean out the concerns and the misinformation people have. As I said, once they know the environmental and societal benefits, acceptability increases. Research has shown that people's satisfaction increases when information is provided by the government about the policy instrument. Um, you remember Stefan Bayala, uh, the guy from Bavaria who runs the District Heat Network. Um, he was in episode three. So I asked him about whether locals preferred community wind farms to those from big businesses from out of town. And here's what he said. Absolutely. They think community energy is better. One example is a wind project finished around 2015. They built really close to homes, which increased complaints about flickering shading and noise. How close were they? About 650 to 700 meters. People used to voice complaints because wind farms were this big unknown. Now, people complain because the company is from some place far away. So people do care about what company is the developer. And I also asked uh, Frank Michael Uhle, who was in episode four. The guy with Europe's largest suspended footbridge, co-funded by local wind power. Right, and here's what he said about acceptance. Of course, some people said they didn't like the changes to the landscape. But a lot of communities held referendums on the matter. City Hall told everyone where wind turbines could be built and what the revenue would be. And they also explained how the money would be spent for the common good. Support then generally ranged from 60 to 70 percent, so the wind farms were built. 
What I find encouraging at the federal level is that new laws require some of the land lease earnings to be diverted to the community where the wind farm is located, even if the plots are private property. I think such things will be crucial because they were the key to our success. So part of the rental income going to the local authority is key to success, as he says. This reminds me of another idea to overcome resistance, which was suggested by a politician from the Social Democrat Party, Matthias Mirsch. He suggested a citizen's wind allowance. Okay, what's a citizen's wind allowance? So it is paid as financial compensation to the affected mu municipalities and also directly to neighbors of wind turbines. But is that the solution to the problem? In extreme cases, a citizen's allowance could even aggravate the conflicts, as Jörg Sommer says. Um, Jörg Sommer is an expert on citizen participation. He is the founding director of a think tank that deals with political participation beyond elections. This think tank is called Berlin Institute for Participation. So what is so problematic about compensation for citizens? Sommer puts forward three arguments. So first, he argues that the wind citizens' allowance could raise desires in other areas. Why, for example, should residents living near wind turbines be compensated, but not people living on busy roads? Second, it raises very practical questions. For example, if the wind turbines are built next to apartment buildings, who should be compensated? The owners of the houses or the tenants? Or both? Right. And third, a wind citizen's allowance can deepen the divisions in society. For example, because some residents receive money, while others who live only a few meters too far away don't receive it. And finally, by making payments to individuals, the policy reinforces a social trend that puts personal selfish interests above the common good. Egoism would be rewarded. This is also problematic in terms of democratic theory. Okay, convinced. A citizen wind allowance is not the best idea. So what are the alternatives? Some forms of compensation promote cohesion. Money isn't offered to individuals, but to the communities, or the district, or the county. And then the people clarify among themselves what should be done with the money. So you have to offer processes for decision-making and moderate them. Uh, that's what Germany's doing for the final storage of nuclear waste. But isn't that process very time-consuming? Well, Jörg Sommer believes that democratic procedures are the fastest. The fastest way to get things done overall is to involve people from the very beginning. An undemocratic procedure can lead to protest and then you only have uncertainty. Let's have a look into how one of the frontrunners in the energy transition is handling the question of acceptance. We have picked an interview partner from Denmark. 
Marie Lea Jorgensen compares, as part of her PhD at the University of Copenhagen, the three Danish compensation schemes and their influence on local acceptance. She got her master's in law and approaches the topic of acceptance with interdisciplinary research, so she combines legal sociology with environmental psychology theory. And community engagement is also part of your free time. She works on the Climate Garden 3000 project. This is where people work on a garden based on permaculture principles. Their purpose is educating and engaging the community for local food production, for cooking and biodiversity. All right. So she's authentic, not only researching the change, but living it. <laughs> exactly. Let's see which scheme is best at addressing fairness and acceptance. Here is the interview with Marie-Lea Jorgensen. And a quick spoiler alert, she's going to problematize everything. Basically, there's no silver bullet. You wrote a dissertation on community benefit schemes for renewables in Denmark. Um, how did they go? Yes, I, I, I did a dissertation about uh, three compensation schemes in Denmark, which were enacted in law and has been in operation from 2009. Uh, these schemes are called uh, the Green Scheme. It's a community benefit scheme. And uh, the second scheme is a property value loss scheme. And it provides uh, some compensation to neighbors. Mm -hmm. And then we have a co-ownership scheme, which allows neighbors to buy shares. Okay. So yeah. maybe we'll just start with the with the first one, the community uh, benefits, uh, sort of, what's the purpose of that? Yeah, so actually the purpose of all the schemes are the same. It is to um, make pe people feel that the distribution is quite fair and and in order to provide local acceptance in, in the communities. Because mm -hmm. as you probably know, in Denmark, as in many other places, the local opposition is a key issue for expanding green energy. Right. And so how does this community yeah. benefit scheme work? Per installed megawatt, the municipality get access to uh, approximately 12,000 euros. Mm -hmm. And these monies can be spent to local projects, for instance, uh, landscape enhancement or recreational enhancements and cultural and information information activities right pretty much anything they want right yeah but but it has to be some something like i just mentioned within landscape recreation oh, okay. or culture yeah it has to be used for some kind of community benefit you can say some something a little bit extra than than uh, the typical municipal mm. expenses but, okay but it, it is of course a gray zone and that's one of the issues so the second one was something about uh, property uh, value losses? Yeah, loss, yeah. So it, it uh, assumes that there will be some kind of property value loss for the nearest neighbors. And uh, therefore, we have established a, a very special scheme in Denmark that uh, allows the nearest neighbors to apply for compensation. And then we have uh, established a special public valuation authority that makes individual assessments on a possible property value loss, and then this compensation is paid. Okay. And and what is interesting about this is, is always taking place with regard to wind turbines. Mm -hmm. 
and even decided before the turbines are established. Then the valuation authorities bases their assessments on visualization and calculations about nuisance related to the, the, the different uh, properties. Yeah, it's very theoretical because they haven't even been built yet. They haven't been built, but there are, of course, all these calculations from the hmm. EIA report. Mm-hmm. So they use all this this information from the environmental impact assessments to to decide. How much money does a property owner get, a homeowner? It has been something between maybe 6,000 euros to about 50,000 euros. It's something in that in that level, but it's it's more more in the lower end. What was the third uh, scheme again? The third scheme is a co-ownership scheme. Mm-hmm. And that's the scheme that I think uh, Germany has copied and also England has copied this scheme mm-hmm. in some parts of the country. And this scheme uh, prohibits developers to offer 20% of the shares in a, in a new wind turbine project to the local citizens at a cost price. And uh, then there are some preferential rights for the nearest neighbors. They can buy 50 shares. Otherwise, the scheme is open for residents in the whole community. And okay. if shares are not sold, which is quite interesting here, I just want to mention that, mm-hmm. then developer can dispose freely. And that means right. that then developer can rise the price and sell it, the right. shares outside the community. I mean, is the German pub- sorry, the Danish public uh, happy when the sort of municipality gets this uh, 12,000 uh, per megawatt? So uh, I should say that, that my study was a qualitative study. Mm-hmm. It was a case study, and I interviewed um, neighbors to three wind turbine projects in Denmark on mm-hmm. onshore. Okay. So, so my my results are based on an analysis of local citizens' pers- mm-hmm. uh, perceptions, which mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting because the schemes are actually targeting targeting these people. Mm-hmm. So, I think it was really interesting to to study what do they think about. The schemes. Overall, the conclusion is that that neither of these schemes actually are efficient in promoting perceptions of distributive fairness and and acceptance. So, so what is the drawback of the community uh, payments? Payments to the municipality. Of course, people are also uh, glad that these money comes into the community, and they mm-hmm. see that this is somehow a positive thing, and that they are recognized. Mm-hmm. But then when you go into each scheme, and, and then they are connected to several concerns. So about the, the community benefit schemes in particular, some interviews, some local citizens perceive that this is bribery, that the money are, are, are provided in order to just to make people feel, feel happy and then not complain about the project. Mm-hmm. And they find that these, these fundings are very low, for instance, mm-hmm. that it's not... Uh, really making any changes in the community that, that, for instance, you can get a new roof on the scout's house or or you can get money for a fireplace somewhere. And they, they, they think this is not the real issue. If they have a problem with the wind farm and then the response is, look, we'll give 50000 or or 100000 to your local budget, that doesn't really even yeah. address the problem. Yeah, that's that's uh, the the appropriateness concern that some people think. Well, this is not not the case. I mean, what our problem is that we we get the uh, nuisance, we get the uh, 
property value loss, and then the, mm. the community benefits are not really going to the the people who have the to feel the impacts. Let's talk about the property losses now, um, because mm. I mean, first of all, is it true that property values drop uh, when a wind farm is built nearby? In uh, in the Danish context, there have been calculations that that this is actually the case, mm-hmm. that the nearest nearest properties maybe drop in six to seven percent in property value. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what we assume in Denmark. But okay. I mean, in the states, they have different uh, approaches to this. They right. don't think it's a, it's a problem. Okay, and yeah. the thing that I find weird about the you know pay the pay the um, property owners is, how does this work if I rent, right? So I'm a tenant in a in a building, and maybe I'm really maybe I'm one of the first buildings um, you know closest to the wind project. And I have to put up with whatever the problem is, right? But my landlord gets the money. Is that correct? Actually, yes. Yeah, it's the owner of the property who, who can, who can um, apply. And then the ownership thing where you said they offer 20% of the project um, to, to local people. Sometimes they don't sell all of it. I mean, how often do they sell all 20%? Well, I looked at three projects. And in one of the projects, they, they sold all the shares. But in the two other projects, they sold only about 10% or something. So very little. And, and I, what, I, what I discovered was that it really depends on how familiar are people with investing in wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the, in the project where all the shares were sold, it was in an in a, in a area where wind has been developing for decades. But in the other projects... There were also like structural issues, such as uh, the electricity price had fallen mm-hmm. quite a lot since the first project I started, and then there was uncertainties other that which make investment risky for uh, ordinary people. Okay, and, and so that was one of the issues here that um, people felt it was not really addressing them because it was too risky, and they couldn't really understand how it worked out because it was on these uh, business terms. And 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 the second problem was that, of course, the scheme addresses people who have money mm-hmm. to invest with, and mm-hmm. it's, this means that there are some kind of unequal access to this scheme. The weird thing about this is, there see, I mean, the policy almost seems to incentivize the wind farm developers to. I mean, there's probably some requirement that they have to advertise, you know, uh, get yeah, the yeah, word out and stuff advertise. like that, right? It's, um, but in a way, if they get to keep the shares they don't sell, I mean, they mm-hmm. must, that's kind of an incentive not to do more than is legally. Yeah. Uh, that was also, te- that was an issue that people addressed in my study. We didn't see the advertisements. They, they were so small in the small corner, corner, and we don't trust the developer who are administrating this scheme mm-hmm. uh, because they, they are maybe keeping information that we don't get and so on. So mm-hmm. the whole setup was not trustful for people. Mm-hmm. And and what about, like, to come back to the first, the, this community benefit scheme, I mean, do people trust their local governments or is there a sense that, you know, City Hall just wants the revenue and, you know, they just want to get this yeah. wind farm up? The, the trust is uh, uh, certainly a concern in this respect as well. Yeah, no, they don't trust that, that the municipality will administrate the money to benefit the people nearest the turbines. Hmm. Yeah. So they are afraid that the money will go into yeah, the community box. 
right. basically. Right. And okay. not benefit the, the impact of the neighbors. If all of this is kind of sort of works and doesn't work that great and maybe the goals weren't really reached, I mean, do you have any ideas about what could be done to improve the situation? In my opinion, it's really, really difficult to design this type of scheme so that they actually meet the needs of the local citizens. Mm-hmm. Because you need to, to have a fair size, you need to have a fair distribution, you need to promote trust mm-hmm. and fair procedure and so on. And, and it's really complicated. But what these schemes are not doing is that they are not going in and changing the real you know, underlying structural issues. It's kind of a band-aid. Well, what are the structural issues? Well, for instance, some some issues relating to distributive unfairness is actually the ownership. Mm-hmm. When uh, wind projects are owned by external and large developers, mm-hmm. there are a natural opposition to this mm-hmm. approach. Yeah, and then you will also see that all the benefits, the financial benefits, are are withdrawn from the community, and it benefits the investors, but it also benefits, of course, the local landowners who who make a, a real good. Right. Profit of this. Right. And this issue is still the same. Even mm-hmm. people get some money for for instance from shareholding or they get some money from green green projects, for instance. They they still see this kind of unfair unfairness. Mm-hmm. If 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 we should do some changes that in my opinion maybe could work, would be to also look at the ownership structures and to, to invite in local communities to to take part in the development of wind projects. Well, I mean, Denmark used to have community energy projects. It was, I mean, the Germans got the idea from the Danes, I think, you know, back, right. back in the 80s and early 90s. And, I mean, would you agree with the statement uh, that community energy projects, community renewable energy projects kind of died out in 2002 and there hasn't been much since? Yeah, that's uh, that's what the literature are, are arguing. There were some changes in uh, ownership structures that took place around this year because the electricity market was liberalized mm-hmm. and some kind of residential requirements were, were removed. Mm-hmm. And this opened up for for larger and external investments in, in energy mm-hmm. development. And it, it also made it really economical uncertain for smaller investors to go into this market. We have very few really community-owned projects today, and it's difficult to get into this um, area. Does it really matter? I mean, does community renewables matter? Because Denmark, if I understand correctly, you're actually mm. doing okay. Um, I mean, in general, oh. you're doing okay, and but also... In transitioning, you're still a leader, right? You're getting your carbon emissions down, and we're doing all of this, uh, you know, handing over the energy sector back to the big companies to bring mm-hmm. the price down. So mm-hmm. should we be worried about the disappearance of community energy? Community ownership is is a possible way to address many of the issues related to local opposition. For instance, the perception of unfair procedure in decision-making, there lacks uh, transparency and people are not feeling they are being heard. And I think one way to address this also is to involve people in in the projects more and feel that they are in control because people feel that 
projects are coming down on them and right. they have no chance to say no. Right. People need to feel agency. Yeah. So I, I think that's the way. And also if people are involved in the process of designing and deciding, they can also better accept that we all have to bear some kind of burdens in relation to the screen transition. It's it's easier to accept if you if you understand and have been involved. So you're saying there is a burden to bear, and if we simply make the argument and and ask for understanding, mm. right, that that will increase acceptance and trust? People who are involved in designing projects and also make also get the income from the projects, they will feel more acceptance to projects, even though it's a burden, for instance, for the, the visual the visual the impact, or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah or, or then you can better live with that because you you have been part of it yourself. Yeah, you understand. Yeah, you understand, but you're also involved. You get the benefits. Yeah. It's not only money running out of your community and you're sitting here with all the burdens. So so that's why I think uh, community projects, they have uh, several advantages that could address some of the issues of uh, local resistance. Trust is a concern in the Danish case. And also from what I know from my studies. So there was a paper on attitudes to carbon taxes across Europe. And we put a link in the show notes. So this study tested four variables in relation to support for a carbon tax, such as energy dependence, living in rural areas, political effectiveness, and political trust. Guess which variable was most influential for support? I'm going to go with trust. Yes, political trust had a larger effect than any other variable. And another interesting finding was, and that also proves the concept of ex-ante and ex-post acceptability. All five countries where the attitude towards increasing carbon taxes are positive are the ones with carbon taxes already in place. So that was Sweden, Finland, Iceland, Norway and Switzerland. And the highest carbon price is found in the country with the highest degree of political trust, which is Sweden. Okay, so how do we increase trust in our institutions and in each other? That's the question we should be asking if we want quick climate action. We also need to talk about perceived fairness. Okay, let me interrupt here because we keep saying perceived, you and me both, perceived benefits and so on. So let's make it clear what that word means and why we're using it. Basically, there's not always an objective way to measure things like fairness and benefits. And what matters is also not always what you can measure, but what people are aware of. You might be able to demonstrate some benefits, but if people don't know about them, then the benefits matter less. So perceptions are important. There will always be some unfairness in this world, but do people at least feel that the system is basically fair? That's what matters. Couldn't have said it better myself. Okay, so what I was trying to say is that perceived fairness consists of personal, distributional and procedural effects. Okay, now you're losing me. On a personal level, people can experience, for example, the loss of value and a changed landscape. 
For the distributional effects, they see that profits mostly leave the community or are not spent to address the real issue. And on the procedural level, people have low trust in government or the setup, and sometimes the decisions are not felt to be democratic. So these are the building blocks of trust. Right. And Jorgensen mentions the appropriateness concern. The money doesn't solve the real problem. So people complain about possible noise from a wind farm and the community then gets money with which a new playground is built. But the playground doesn't even address the noise issue. So people might not find it to be appropriate. And yet the suspended footbridge in Rhein-Hunsrück made everyone happy. Yes, but Mr. Ulla also says there wasn't much protest anyway against the wind farms. Okay, well... Let's try to finish this episode with a positive, solution-oriented outlook. Compensation schemes don't address underlying structural problems. What we need instead is a public ownership and a democratic process of participation. I think this is already a great transition to our next episode, which will focus on cooperatives. So, if you are keen on finding solutions tune in next week. And as we have switched roles this episode, this time I'm asking you, Craig, what are your takeaways? There's no silver bullet. What works in one place might not in another. There's no button to press and suddenly everyone likes your project. People are complex and that's good. It's something to celebrate, not regret. Anything else? And we need to make the energy transition something to be proud of. Forget acceptance. Make doing the right thing a matter of pride, something that defines you and makes you happy. You've been listening to the Community Renewables Podcast, produced by Germany's Renewable Energy Agency, the AEE, for the local Community Renewables Project, LICO. The project is funded by the European Union's Northern Periphery and Arctic Program 2014 to 2020, which is supported by the European Regional Development Fund. We would also like to thank the German Community Energy Alliance, BBEN, and the Heinrich Böll Foundation for their special support. I'm your host for today, Craig Morris. And I'm here with the person who is usually our host, Rebecca Freitag. Freitag for future! The overdubbing of the interviews in German was spoken by Pascal Morris. And the music throughout this podcast is from the best Irish folk band ever from Japan, Tricolor! Check the show notes for their music. Art is what makes us human. So support your local artists after all this corona business is over. And now, Rebecca, who, uh, is it my turn for the jokes or your turn? What are we doing? It's my turn. Ah, once again. Okay, but I'm up next week. Yeah, and I have some animal jokes for you today. Okay. So, Craig, what do you call a cow in, a, in an earthquake? A uh, milkshake. Yes, ah, very good. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, that, that, that was too easy. That was too easy. <laughs> okay, next question. Why do the French eat snails? I don't know. What else do you want to do with snails? They don't like fast food. 
Oh, okay. Good, good, good. What did one flea say to the other flea when they came out of the movies? Don't know. Should we walk home or take a dog? <laughs> okay. Why are cats better storytellers? Because they only have one tail. Ah. <laughs> okay. And last one. What did the buffalo say to his son when he left for college? Don't know. Bye, son. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bye-bye, right. everyone. <laughs> yeah, see you next week.